Hey, good morning, church. My name is Matt Howe. For those of you that may not know me, uh, one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills. Good morning to those of you watching live stream online as well, which has been a great uh, service that we've been able to offer over the last few months. How many of you have been able to catch a service or part of a service online over the last few months? Yeah, look around. Isn't that awesome? So, you know, you're with us here when, when we're not here, basically. Um, and we've been working through Jonah, and what's been really cool, I was telling uh, a couple before service started that we keep catching wind of other churches, um, not just here locally, but even globally, that have been um, working through the book of Jonah during Lent, which is just, in my mind, no coincidence. In fact, we had uh, a family that was here last week, the Jacobis, um, visiting from Nashville. The Jacobis uh, were members here for several years, and um, we're back for the first time in quite some time, and Bill said when he walked in, he saw Jonah on the screen, and he was like, no way, because that's what their church in Nashville um, has been working through. And so, you know, I just happen to believe that that's totally of God, that God uh, has that planned, and, and no doubt God has planned for us another great um, message this morning, so, so that's great. Um, you may remember week one, um, God spoke uh, very specifically to Jonah and, and called Jonah and said, Jonah, you are going to be my messenger, my chosen messenger, to go to Nineveh and to deliver um, the message that I have for people there. And of course, Jonah was like, no way, right? And, and we know that Jonah went and he boarded a ship that was headed towards Tarshish, which was like completely on the other end of the world, at least is what they believed back then. Um, it was getting as far away from the place where God really wanted Jonah to go as possible. And then we learned in week two that um, Jonah got on the ship and was headed in that direction, and God sent this, this supernatural storm that, that hit the sea and the ship um, where Jonah was, and that all of the sailors believed they were going to perish. They didn't know what to do. They woke Jonah up. They said, Jonah, have you brought this thing on us? Jonah said, yes, it's my fault. I'm running from God. It's the God who created everything, even the seas and the winds. And they said, well, what should we do? And he's like, throw me overboard. And they're like, that seems extreme. And so they tried to row uh, to safety themselves, but with no success. And so sure enough, in the end, they relented and they cast Jonah uh, overboard. And we know that the second Jonah's feet hit the water, the seas became calm, the winds stopped blowing, the storm stopped crashing around them. But that was only the beginning of Jonah's trouble, right? Because here Jonah was in the middle of the sea, I mean, destined to drown, destined to perish, uh, we heard a little bit of that prayer last week, but God kept on that pursuit, right? And so he chose a giant fish to swallow up Jonah, where though, then Jonah proceeded to spend three full days and nights in the belly of that whale. And we saw last week Jonah's prayer of repentance that came from the belly of that whale. And the fish vomited Jonah up onto dry land. And that's kind of where we pick up the story this morning. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Right on. <laughs> Way to go, Jonah. It only took... A stormy sea being swallowed up by a whale. Okay, so now Nineveh was a very large city, it says. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming. Here's Jonah's message. And this is all that we get of Jonah's message, by the way. A very, very small little tidbit here. Jonah said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So just imagine someone rolls up into Anderson Township tomorrow 
and just starts walking around into every neighborhood and every street corner, over at the town center, you know, and, and just saying over and over again, 40 more days and Anderson Township will be overthrown. And most of you would be thinking like, yeah, I've been saying that for years, you know? <laughs> no. Be a, little, be a little odd, wouldn't it? Well, look at what happened in verse 5. It says, the Ninevites believed God. And not only did they believe God's message, it says a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And sure enough, in verse 10, the scriptures tell us, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Pretty powerful. Very small snippet. Ten verses. One line from Jonah. And, re- and in repentance of an entire city. Despite Jonah's failure to heed God's call the first time, God did not give up on him. And that's because our God is a God of the second chance. How many of you, by a show of hands, could... Um, testify to the fact this morning that our God is a God of the second chance. Yeah. How many of you would probably even stand as a, not literally stand, I'm not going to ask you to stand, okay, that'd be weird, right? But how many of you would, if you were admitting it, you would say, my life would stand as an example of God being a God of the second chance? I mean, I would. And not just the second chance. I mean, we're talking third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chance. I mean, that's who God is. That's God's very nature. God didn't give up on Jonah. And although we sometimes try his patience, God doesn't give up on us either. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning thinking that there is no way that God could ever forgive you for what you have done. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking that there's no way God could ever use you after what's been done to you. Well, I want you to know you're wrong because the God that I serve, the God of the Bible, the God of Genesis through Revelation, the God of Jonah's day, the God who was able to save the Ninevites out of their trouble is the same God of the second chance who is alive today and working in the lives of the people here. The scriptures say that where sin abounds, his grace abounds all the more. That's a beautiful picture where sin is just going wild. And by the way, I don't know that it's ever gone, I mean, short of maybe Sodom and Gomorrah, think about Nineveh in kind of the same light. Sin abound, was abounding there, right? It was, it was prevalent. It was, it was the daily routine. 
people woke up, put their feet to the floor. How am I going to sin today? Right? That's what it was. And yet, God's grace abound, abounded all the more. God could have let Jonah die in the sea. God could have gone out and found a more willing and obedient servant, but God did not. Instead, God showed Jonah mercy, not just once, but several times, over and over again, until finally, after being plunged into drowning waters and rescued by God's hand, Jonah heard and responded with obedience to God's call. Listen to these words of the prophet Micah spoken concerning the merciful nature of God. This is Micah 17, uh, chapter 7, verses 18 through 19. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. And you will hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I love that. Who is a God like you? Who time and time and time again pardons and forgives the sin of your people. Listen to these words of the Apostle Peter. This is 2 Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think it's really important that we understand that very, that very simple truth about who God is. Those last two lines. God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's, that's who God is. That's his heartbeat. Truth be told, no one understood the merciful compassionate side of God better than Peter. I mean, it was Peter who, in the days prior when Jesus told him, hey, you're going to deny me three times, said, oh, no, 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 not me, Lord. Never me. I won't deny you. And sure enough, on the heels of Jesus being arrested, Peter was approached three different times and asked if he was the one that had been seen earlier with Jesus. And what did Peter say? Nope, not me. Don't even know him. Stop asking me. I don't have anything to do with that guy. And we know the rest of the story, the rooster crow, but then do we know the rest of the story? Because it was days later after the resurrection that Jesus appeared out on the beach and a group of men were out fishing. And one of those men was Peter and the other were some of the other disciples of Jesus. They had gone back to doing the thing that they knew, the thing that was comfortable for them. And it was Jesus who called out to them, and they come in from, from the sea, and immediately they realize that it's, that it's Jesus. But Jesus doesn't proceed to scold Peter. Jesus takes Peter aside, and he asks him a series of three questions. Really just one question three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus says, well, or Peter says, well, you know I do, Lord. Of course I love you. And what does Jesus say? Well, then feed my lambs. And again, Peter, do you love me? Well, of course, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. And then a third time, the same thing. And what, what Jesus does there is he reinstates Peter. He shows Peter his merciful, compassionate, loving, and forgiving and grace-giving nature. And then he tells Peter, now go do the thing 
that I set aside for you to do in the first place. Same thing he tells Jonah. Now go do the thing that I set aside for you to do in the first place. Repentance, to repent, does not mean that we simply say that we're sorry and then continue on down the same path. To repent means to turn away or to turn back to God. Repentance involves a total about face where there is not only sorrow over sin, but a change in attitude, a change in priorities, and a change in lifestyle. We see this about face change when Peter and the other apostles throw down their nets once and for all to launch the church of Jesus Christ. We see this about face change when Jonah finally confronts the Ninevites with God's word. And amazingly, they recognize their evil, they repent of it, and they too believe. Their hearts are transformed and God takes notice. The beauty of of this chapter, of chapter 3 here in Jonah, is that Jonah is not alone in any way, shape, or form. God is at work with Jonah. And for that matter, he's already been at work behind the scenes prepping the hearts of the Ninevites. For the day in which Jonah would finally respond obediently to God's call. Think about that. Like if God's calling you to do something, he's not calling you to do it and and leaving you all alone. He's already at work in the lives of the people that he is prepping you to go to, stirring and moving and working and molding and shaping and prepping, so that when you do in fact respond in obedience to what he's calling you to do, those people are ripe, those people are ready. That's how God works. God was already at work in Assyria. And there's no doubt in my mind that God is already at work in the lives and hearts of the people that he is calling us to. How many of you would say that you are a spotlight kind of person? You do your best work in the spotlights of life. Like you're more of a get up in front, preach a sermon on Sunday kind of person. All right, it's me. <laughs> Eric, strength, p- power in numbers, brave baby, power in numbers. All right, come on, people. How many of you are like spotlight people? Like you do your best work and, okay, come on, be, be, it's okay to say that, right? We're like ashamed. Well, I mean, you know, okay, all right. How many of you are the opposite? You're more behind the scenes, working in the back, like get help. Okay, all right, yes, okay. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think in our society, we have almost taught both groups of people to feel shame. You know, like, feel shame if you're the upfront, in the room, spotlight kind of person. Be quiet, sit down. You're making it uncomfortable for everyone else, right? But then at the same time, oh, if you're not the person who's able to get up in front, you're quieter in nature and you're more, you know, withdrawn and whatever, you know, just kind of working quietly and humbly over here, like, that's bad. Listen to me. Here's the, Genesis talks about how we're made in the what of God? The image of God. So if you are designed to work in the spotlight, you are living the image, you are living the image of God. If you are created, if you're more of a person who works best backstage, behind the scenes, guess what? You're reflecting the image of God. Because who is God? God is both. 
God is both at work in the spotlight and behind the scenes. That's who God is. Now, you might not be a person who's able to do both, but God can. And that's who God is. We see throughout Scripture where God is both prepping the hearts of people, working behind the scenes, bringing things to fruition, and where God just shows up and ba-bam, right? He does it. But it's, but it's both. What does this mean? It means that God is always at work. Who knows where God is already at work, what God may already be doing, what God may already be preparing for each and every one of us. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I, which is he, which is God, knows the plans that he has for you. God knows the plans he has for you. God knows the plans he has for me. God is already at work. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. God's not getting caught off guard constantly. That would be really concerning if that's who he was. The people of Nineveh take Jonah seriously. There is significant change in their culture, in their speech, in their actions. Everyone repents, the Bible says, from the highest ranking official to the low man on the totem pole, everyone repents. And what does that mean? It means that revival hits Nineveh. Some of you, no doubt, have heard of the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was a series of revivals that that began in England and America in the mid-1700s. Nobody here was alive then, but you've heard about them. The Industrial Revolution had brought huge cultural changes that in turn created a climate for political revolution and violence. And out of this came a man named John Wesley and the beginning of the Methodist movement. Wesley and another man by the name of George Whitefield led the revival in England. Another man, Jonathan Edwards, was intricately involved in in America in, in, in what we now know as the United States. Thousands claim to faith through their preaching and churching, uh, through their churches. And, and, and things began to happen. As a result, uh, moral, the moral climate of that time began to change. People took back their families. They stood for the things of God. The revival provided social mobility into the middle class. Wesley had his own version of, of Dave Ramsey's financial peace, Vic and Sue. He taught about stewardship and how to use money wisely. He established a loan fund, a system for finding employment and a lending stock that enabled the poor to acquire the necessities in order to open a small business. There were schools that were being started for children of poor families. In America, universities were started so that preachers could get an education. Schools with names like Princeton and Rutgers and Brown and Dartmouth. The Methodist movement helped to start medical clinics and prison reform and the abolitionist movement. The most influential anti-slavery leader in parliament was William Wilberforce, who worked to abolish slavery in England. He was discipled by another man named John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader who was converted to Christ by a Methodist preacher and is famous for writing the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. Even Benjamin Franklin, while never himself professing open faith in Christ, admired the preaching of these men and saw the positive change that it brought in culture. The Great Awakening. And then there was a second great 
awakening. Now the question is, what great awakening may God be wanting to do now, in the year 2019? God not only gives second chances to us, he gives second chances to churches, to cultures, to countries. God never gives up on us. God is at work even now preparing you, preparing me, preparing this church, preparing this city for a time when God is going to move. There's a work to be done. We have work to be done. It seems just even sharing about how different churches globally are doing this Jonah series during Lent, it would seem as if God is up to something. And it would seem as if God is wanting to use Anderson Hills as a part of that something. Our greatest responsibility is to make sure that our heart is aligned to God's heart. To make sure that when God calls us, we're ready to say yes. And we start with repentance. Imagine how revival might change our culture individually corporately, as the church, and as a community. This morning we have a testimony to share with you of uh, a man who is a regular attender of, of this congregation. His name is Mike Gutbeier. Mike's a good friend of mine, great guy. But Mike was generous enough to share his, his testimony, a, bit, a piece of it with us um, via video. And so we want to watch that and just see where revival has started in the, in the heart of one, of one man. Okay, watch this. You know, looking back at my life, I know that God's pursued me my entire life, but I just wasn't aware of it. Starting out, you know, my father and I were on kind of different pages as far as what his way of giving love is and my way of receiving love. Um, because of those differences, I, you know, found myself needing uh, or found what I felt was a hole in my heart or needing something needing to fill the emptiness because I wasn't receiving the love that I needed. So not experiencing the love I needed from my father, it took me down a really dark path. It started off first with trying to overachieve in sports. Then it went to girls and women. Alcohol, drugs, money, success. What I found was is, is the more I took in, almost the emptier I got. I realized that the worldly things could never fill the hole that I had in my heart. It got me to a point where um, it was time for me to make a decision. I was in a very, very dark place and, and that morning that I woke up, there were, I had two choices. One was to change my life and two was to commit suicide. Sad to say, I contemplated suicide for a long time. But God gave me a second chance. In that moment, he put a picture of Madeline in my brain. And I knew that I could never destroy her because of my brokenness and my darkness. And that allowed me to, to change. I met a pastor and, and he accepted me and he loved me through the darkest moments. And because of that, um, that opened my mind to, to make change. That led to Emmaus and me experiencing God's love for the first time, a true love, um, something that I could never explain or, or, or to um, fathom. I truly felt the love of God 
And in that moment, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It was a feeling that I could never explain, probably still can't to this day, but it's overwhelmed me and allowed me to move forward. In that second chance that God has given me, um, I have experienced a freedom, uh, a love, an excitement, um, a joy that I just want to share with the world. And I want to use that to spread His joy and love. I want to love others the way that I am being loved by Him. Can I just pray for us this morning? God, so many of us, um, when we read this story of Jonah, we think about some man who lived a long, long time ago. Um, some of us maybe even we contemplate, like, was this a real person? Was this something fictional? I mean, could a man really be swallowed up by a giant fish, spend three days in the belly of a whale? Yet, God, when we really begin to strip down this story and we really begin to look at it, we see where it is the story of us. It's the story of me. It's the story of, of every person in this room. Where, God, at some point in our lives, no matter how young or how old, we were running from you. We were on a ship destined towards death. Destined for destruction. And yet, God, because of your love, your unconditional love. You relentlessly pursued us. And you made provision after provision after provision, just waiting for us to respond obediently to your call. And God, for some, that's where the story stops this morning. Because God, we've heard the call, but we've not yet responded in obedience. We're still fighting it. We're still questioning. We're still doubting. We're still fearing. We're still, we're still fumbling around. God, if that's a, a person in this room this morning and that, that they've just they've heard the call, they've heard clearly from you where, you where you want them to be and what you want them to do with their life, and yet, God, they're fighting it. God, I pray today they would just it would, they would surrender. They would surrender. There is power and there is freedom in surrender. God, for others in the room, we've surrendered. We've turned our lives over. But there's still just a part of that that we're kind of holding back. There's still that one little piece of the pie that we're struggling to just let you have total control over. Lord, I pray that today we would just take our hands off of it. That we would just raise our hands and surrender and we would just say, God, it is all yours. 100% yours. God, help all of us. Help all of us to respond in obedience to your call. To have that desire inside of us to love others the way that you love us. To share that message of grace and mercy and compassion with the people around us who need it. So we're going to transition right now into just some prayer time, just some quiet time, kind of like we've been doing the last few weeks where you, right where you are in your seat, can just kind of do business with God and just be honest about, you know, here's where I am. Here's where I am. And that, in that Jonah timeline of things, this is kind of where I am right now in my life. 
and I know I need to go here, but I'm, but I'm kind of stuck right there. And just be really honest and really transparent with God. He knows it anyway. He knows where you are. And just do business where you're at. I'm going to invite uh, prayer ministers, if we have them here this morning, I believe that we do, just to go ahead and make their way down to the front, just kind of stand off here to the corners. And if you just need someone to, like, come alongside of you in that this morning, like, just to agree with you in that prayer towards that end, like, man, these people, they want to be there for you, right? So however you need to do it this morning, whether it's where you're at, whether it's up front, whether it's at this stage, at this altar, whatever you need to do, just do business with God here for a few minutes. All right, let's pray.